Good morning. Hey, I'm Adam, and I'm the next-gen pastor here at Northwest. Excited to be up here bringing the word. Um, had a great time just studying and prepping for this morning. A lot of great truths coming out of the Old Testament this morning. So if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to be back in Exodus, a little bit in Genesis as well, and we're going to kind of kick it old school today. So before we jump in, though, things in our lives, maybe if I say this, you'll, your mind will go somewhere, but when you are in a certain situation or when you sit somewhere for a long period of time, something might happen to you that is a noticeable difference. For instance, when I was in high school, we went on a family vacation and uh, we were at the beach and the first day at the beach, I was out in the water all day long. I love the beach, didn't have sunglasses on. If you know me now, I always have to have sunglasses on when it's sunny because my eyeballs are terrible. But I actually got the whites of my eyes sunburnt. Has anyone ever had that happen to them? The whites of my eyeballs got sunburnt. And so for a few days, I could not go outside. I had to have eye drops constantly in my eyes. They were itchy. It was terrible, right? The feeling you get from having your skin sunburnt, <laughs> it was my eyeballs. So I was in the sun for too long, but when I was there, there was a noticeable difference on my body. If I get cold, too cold, I have something called Raynaud's syndrome. Maybe you guys have this. So if I'm outside and I don't have proper protection on my feet or on my fingers, then the, the blood vessels will actually restrict the blood flow a little bit and the surface of my skin will get numb and my fingers and toes will turn white, discolored completely. I got that from, from my mama, so uh, Raynaud syndrome. But if I'm outside for too long in the cold, there is a noticeable difference on my body. If I'm in the water for too long, California raisin. All right, get really pruney, okay? You guys, California raisin. Uh, get really pruney, all right? So certain situations in our life, if we're there too long or if we're there for, a, maybe not too long, but a long period of time, there's a noticeable difference. So we have been, the last few weeks, been talking about entering into the presence of God and being in the presence of God. Kind of see where we're going with that illustration. And we started by talking about just the invitation that God gives us to be in his presence. He's calling us. He wants us to be in his presence. But so often in our lives, we have so many obstacles that get in the way of entering into the presence of God. And then last week, Matt talked about how when we are in the presence of God, there's power found in that. There's power that comes from sitting and being in the presence of God. And this week, I want to look at stories of two men, three stories that had a supernatural, real, raw, miraculous, really, experience with God. We're going to look at a, a few stories of Moses, and then we're going to look at a story of Jacob. So go ahead and go back to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to see a difference that plays out in their lives after having sat in the presence of God physically and spiritually. So we're going to kind of take both of those and talk about that this morning. And the whole message, the whole point of this message really is to just drive that point across. It's not like a, like a might or a could or a maybe. It's really a promise. It's an absolute. Here's the absolute. When you sit in the presence of God, you will be different because of it. That's an absolute. That's a promise. It's not maybe you'll be different. It could happen. But when you sit in the presence of God, you will be different. So take that, hold on to that, let's go through these stories. So Exodus chapter 3, this is a story coming out of Egypt, and I want to just kind of catch us up so we have a little bit of context as to what's going on, okay? So at the end of Genesis, Joseph has moved all of his family into Egypt, right, to, to save them from the famine. So they're all in Egypt, and over time, they start 
kind of overpopulating and they start growing in number, the Israelites, and they start becoming stronger and there's a new Pharaoh in town and so he, he's like, you know, this is not good for us. They may grow too strong and begin to take us over, so I have an idea. Let's enslave them. Let's, let's force them into slavery so that we'll have control over them. Well, that doesn't work, and Israel continues to grow. So the Pharaoh says, hey, how about this? Every time there's a baby born that's a male, throw them into the river, okay? Just, just kill the baby, and let's just go ahead and stop this rapid growth once and for all. And so Moses' mom, she, he's born, she takes him, puts him in a basket, sends him up river, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and raises him as her own. So, so Moses becomes a prince of Egypt. And this is kind of where we, uh, where we pick up in the beginning of Exodus. Now, Moses is out kind of walking around, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. So Moses kills the Egyptian, tries to hide his body, then gets a little bit found out, so he runs off to the wilderness. He's like, I'm out, I don't want to deal with this. So he goes out and he's, he happens upon a well and some women come out to the well and some shepherds start messing with the women and they start trying to drive them off away from the well. This is our well. Don't step on our turf. Moses steps in, saves the day, saves the women, ends up marrying one of these women named Zipporah and she is uh, of the family of Midian. And so Moses goes from being the prince of Egypt to a shepherd in Midian. And this is where we're going to pick up now in Exodus chapter three. This is God now coming to Moses and having this supernatural interaction. So Exodus chapter three, verses one through three, here's what it says. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Pause for a second before we continue. This is kind of funny to me. Does anyone talk to themselves? Like I literally was driving, I was driving here this morning and I had a granola bar and it was a little bit crunchy and out loud, I'm by myself, out loud, I was like, oh man, that's a crunchy granola bar. And I said that to myself and I was like, what the heck? So Moses, is, he's walking along and he's just minding his business, no one with him and he looks over and there's a bush burning. He's like, huh, I think I'll turn and look at that bush and see why it's not being engulfed in flames. And he says that out, I don't know, that's just funny to me. Okay, verses four through six. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So here it is. Moses is now standing on holy ground. His sandals are removed and he's in the presence of of God. Now I want to read in its entirety chapter 3 and we're actually going to get into to verse 17 of chapter 4, but I want you to see this conversation that God and Moses have. And as we read through here, this is good. It's a little bit of a of a Bible study practice for us all, okay? As we read through this, I want you to make note of what the response of Moses is. When God tells him to do certain things, I want you to make note of what Moses says and how he kind of responds to God, and then I'll kind of recap that at the end. But let's read this in its entirety and look at, at the response of Moses when God asks him to do something big. So here we go, verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, this, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. 
Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now... Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So the first point, if you are taking notes, here's the first point of the message this morning, is that being in the presence of God will give you confidence in weakness. 
So being in the presence of God will give you confidence in weakness. Maybe you picked up on this as we were going through that passage, but here's a few things I want to point out, okay? Hashtag relatable. All right. Chapter 3, verse 11. We see there right away that Moses has a lot of self-doubt and fear. He has a lot of self-doubt and fear. If you go back and look, basically he's like, you know, come on, God. You want me to go to the most powerful man in the world and make demands of him. Like that would create a lot of self-doubt and fear, I think, in most of us. But we see that in Moses because that is an impossible task, seemingly, that is set before him. But look at God's response in verse 12. He says, I will be with you. So there's an assurance there. Well, in chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Moses has a lot of skepticism. He says, all right, God, I hear you, but there's no way that the people are going to listen to me. Really, they're going to believe that you appeared to me, that you asked me to, to do this? Ah, there's a lot of skepticism there. And God responds by, of course, giving him the ability to prove that he's being truthful, right? The staff and the, the uh, magical cloak of leprosy and the water and, and the blood and a whole bunch of other things that we'll see in just a minute. But then we see in verse 10, we see a lot of excuses, right? We see excuses start coming out. Wow, turning my staff into a snake, leprous, blood and water, that's powerful, that's unbelievable. But I'm not really the best talker, right? So there's an excuse that comes out of this. So God gives him another assurance of the power that he holds, right? Listen, I created you. I created your mouth. I will give you the words to say. Just trust me. I promise when it comes time to speak, I will make you speak well. So finally, in verse 13, you see just complete defiance, right? You see Moses go, okay, finally, God, do you not hear me? I don't want to go. Send somebody else. I don't want to do it. So you have Moses kind of go through this, this path of like, nah, uh, uh, no, and like he's like, I don't want to do it, right? There's, there's this excuse after excuse after excuse. So God actually gets a little bit angry, and he gives him Aaron because Aaron can speak well, and so they do it together. It's easy for us, I think, to look at Moses and go, Moses, come on, man. Like, look what God just showed you. Look at the power that he just showed you. If I, I feel like if I saw that, I would be a little bit more confident in going and talking to somebody, but then I think maybe not, <laughs> and Moses is in that position, right? You see the wonders and the power of God, but sometimes we see those things and then we forget even in the moment that he did it and we still have fear and self-doubt that rises. But that's us, right? Like God, God may ask us to do something. God may ask us to go somewhere. God may ask us to speak to somebody. We may have unhealthy friendships or relationships that God tells us to change, right? There's things that, that are hard decisions that, that, that God puts in front of us that sometimes seem impossible to do. And so we enter into this conversation with God and we're, we're riddled with self-doubt and fear and we don't really fully believe that God can really use us or really do anything through us. And so we come up with excuse after excuse after excuse and finally after the Holy Spirit just doesn't seem to give up, we just yell, no, I don't wanna do it, God. I don't want to do that. That's too hard. I can't do that. But if we just sit in the presence of God, if we just sit and sh shut our mouths and allow him to get some words in, here's what we might hear. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Fear not, for I will be with you. I created you. I know you better than you know yourself. Trust me, don't trust yourself. You aren't good enough. But I am. I will give you words. I will give you power. I will give you wisdom to speak. Just let go of your doubts. Let go of your fears, your skepticism, your excuses, your defiance. 
and watch what I can do. So being in the presence of God will give you confidence in weakness. All right, let's keep going. So sticking with Moses, we're gonna go ahead to Exodus chapter 34. And I wanna give you kind of the Cliff Notes version of the in-between, okay? So there's 10 plagues that God unleashes on Egypt. And the first nine plagues, we see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart after he does these crazy, wondrous signs. And finally, on the 10th one, he kills all the firstborn children in Egypt, including Pharaoh's son. So finally, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. So finally, when they leave, they're down by the Red Sea, and here come the Egyptians, right? They, they pursue them, and they get to the Red Sea, and God, of course, creates kind of a wall of fire to protect the Israelites. And Moses sticks his staff in the Red Sea, the waters part, and the Israelites walk across to the other side. And as soon as they're to the other side, here come the Egyptians. They're in hot pursuit through the, the Red Sea. So God closes up the waters over them, and everyone who had pursued them into the, to the sea now perishes, and they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. So Moses goes up to Mount the of Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments on the tablets and he gets hundreds of other laws from God. During that time, they grow impatient down at the, the bottom of the mountain. So Aaron tells him, hey, bring all your gold and we fashion this golden calf and we're gonna worship, this is your God. Okay, you want a God, here's your God. So they worship this golden calf. So when Moses comes down off the mountain, he sees, sees them worshiping this false idol, takes the tablets and just shatters them into a million pieces on the ground. He's like, seriously, you don't deserve this. Bah, sh you know, shatters the tablets. And so then we get to about chapter 32, 33, and God gives them a command. Okay, you've been in Mount Sinai, but now it's time to go. It's time to start your journey into the wilderness towards the promised land. But before they go, God is gonna give them again the commandments because he wants them to have these as they, uh, as they go off into the wilderness. So we see this conversation now pick up in chapter 33 in Exodus. And it, it ends a little bit differently this time. So look at Exodus chapter 33 in verse 12, and we're gonna go through verse 23 here to begin. It says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So then after this interaction, Moses goes back up the mountain and look at verse 29 of chapter 34. Flip to the next chapter. 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, so he's had another interaction with God, when he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. 
Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron, all the leaders of the congregation, returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. By the way, point two is being in the presence of God will make you look different, okay? Being in the presence of God will make you look different. So Moses has been given this massive task of leading the Israelites, millions of people, through the wilderness towards the promised land. And things aren't really exactly going that well. And he's been given instruction now to leave Sinai. And so he's like, listen, God, we'll go, but I want an assurance that you will be with us. Like, I'm not going anywhere unless you're going with us, right? And so God says, it is as you say, I have spoken. But then Moses, the audacity, listen, the audacity that that guy has to ask God to see his glory. But even crazier than that is that God's like, all right. So he puts Moses up on a rock. He covers his face so that he can't see the fullness of his glory because no man, it says in the New Testament, no man has ever seen the fullness of God and lived. So he puts his hand over Moses and he walks past him. And when he's finally beyond him, he takes his hand away and Moses sees his back. Look at uh, verse 29 of chapter 34. Here's kind of the, the big idea of this point. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Why? Because he had been talking with God. So because he had been talking with God, there was a visible difference in Moses' appearance. You could tell that he had been with God. Now, don't hear me say that when we are in the presence of God basking in his glory that your face will shine like that because this is like a one-time thing. I don't think anyone else has ever been in the presence of God in this way and has come out shining so that you can't look, okay? And that's kind of a miraculous thing that happened to Moses. But what I am saying is that when you sit in the presence of God and you marinate in his word and in his presence, there is a noticeable difference in your life. Let's start with personally. So we can tell as believers when we're doing well in our relationship with God, can't we? I mean, you, if you're not spending time with God, for me, I'm easily irritable, I'm a little more impatient, a little more quick to anger, things like that. Things, my natural man, my natural self, those things come out when I'm not really spending a lot of time with God. But when I am spending time with God and when I am in his presence and allowing him to speak to me, it's a noticeable difference. There's more patience. There's more joy. There's more love in interactions. And so I can tell personally when I've had good time with God, and I don't know, maybe you're like that as well, but there's also a noticeable difference when you interact with somebody who's been in the presence of God. It's indescribable. I remember a few years back, this wasn't planned, but I spoke with her beforehand. I remember interacting with Cynthia Kulak a few years back after her son passed away, and it is unbelievable the responses and the way that she interacted with people, and not just her, Keen as well, but I just remember specifically conversations where you go, you have so obviously been in the presence of God. You have so obviously been sitting and allowing him to speak to you because there's no way you could respond this way. 
but you have been speaking, and so she's, she's finding contentment in him, and she's finding wisdom in how she speaks to people, and she's finding ways to love other people, and it's unbelievable when you are able to interact with somebody who's been sitting in the presence of God when things should not be the way that they are and God still uses these people because he has been just influencing and transforming and making them look more and more like Jesus. And if you've interacted with someone in that way, there's a noticeable difference in their life. We can tell. And so we may not be shining, but you can tell when someone's been in the presence of God. There is a noticeable difference. Being in the presence of God will make you look different. Now, I want to jump back a bit, and I want to look at the story of Jacob. I want to go to Genesis chapter 32. So go ahead and flip back there to Genesis 32. And I want to give you just a little Cliff Notes version of what's going on, because context is very important in this story. So if you remember back to the story of Jacob and Esau and kind of their early beginnings, you have Jacob, who is named Jacob because of how he was birthed. He tried to get out first but it wasn't successful. Esau was born first. He is the older brother, but they're twins. And so Jacob is named Jacob because he is a deceiver. So in other words, you're gonna always try to kind of get ahead in life. You're always gonna try to kind of cheat your way to get somewhere, to get ahead, right? And we see that in his life over and over again. So you have Jacob and Esau. Now, if you remember the stories, you have Esau who's out hunting. He's out doing what he does and Jacob's inside and he's, he's cooking the meal. And so Esau comes back and Esau's very, very hungry. He's famished. And so Jacob says, all right, I got some stew for you, but if you want it, you got to trade me your birthright. And Esau being the impulsive teenager that he was when he saw food, he said, all right. So he traded away his birthright. And so that's kind of deception or like cheating or what are you weaseling his way, I guess, number one. And then you have Isaac, their father, on his deathbed a few years later, and you have him laying there and you have to make a, a long story short, Jacob comes in, he deceives his dad into getting now the family inheritance. And so two times he's cheated. First he cheats um, Esau into getting the birthright. Now he's deceived his father and he's gotten the inheritance. So as you can imagine, Esau's pretty ticked at this point. So he even says it in Genesis. He says, okay, I'm gonna let the family mourn for a little bit, but then after a period of mourning, uh, I'm gonna kill Jacob because I, I just can't stand that kid anymore. So Jacob flees, he runs, he's gone. So Jacob goes and he lives for about 25 to 30 years and God comes to him and he says, hey, I want you to go back to the land of your fathers and I want you to, to go back there and just trust me, just go. Just listen to what I'm saying. So he goes back and then he catches wind that Esau is actually on his way to meet him with 400 armed men. So you can imagine Jacob's mindset, right? Uh, oh, by the way, Jacob forgot his army. So he's there, he's with his family, but he starts to freak out a little bit. So in order to, to avoid complete annihilation, Jacob splits up his family and the people that are with him into two camps. He says, you guys go camp over there, you guys go camp over there, because if Esau comes after us, at least we won't be completely wiped out. Only half of us will die. So you go there, you go there, and then he sends his family across the river, and then he enters into this, this night of, of prayer and pleading and wrestling with God. So number three, um, we're going to read Genesis 32, but number three is that being in the presence of God sometimes requires wrestling. So being in the presence of God sometimes requires wrestling. So look at Genesis chapter 32 in verse 11. It says, please, this is Jacob speaking to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with children. But you said, I will surely do you good and I make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So, so Jacob's reminding God of his promise. Listen, I'm fearful of what Esau can do, but remember what you promised. 
You promised that my descendants would be. And so he's kind of bringing that up to God. Jump over to verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the, the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, but he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. I don't even know if I'm saying that word right. And if you get to chapter 33, verse 4, just so I don't leave you hanging, here's what it says. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So there's a happy reunion after all. I don't want to leave like the cliffhanger. What does Esau do? So Jacob begins his night just completely full of fear, desperation. So he begins crying out to God. But at the end of this struggle, you see Jacob with a, with a blessing of a new name, and you see also a stronger and deeper faith in God. Usually Jacob was spoken to by God in dreams or visions, but this time God actually showed up physically and also inflicted him with a debilitating injury, which is pretty cool in a second. We'll talk about that. Now, I do want to say right up front, Jacob does say that I saw the face of God. If you're a student of the word and you like reading commentaries, there is some debate about this, about whether it was an angel of the Lord. If it was God in a person's form, then we know it was Jesus himself. So there's a lot of debate over, was it like the son of man that appeared? The point is, is that he wrestled with God in some way and he acknowledged that in this place, I wrestled with God. I've seen the face of God. So the point is not, was it really God? Was it an angel? But the point is, is in that moment, somehow Jacob wrestled with God. Listen, God pursued Jacob in this, right? Jacob didn't go out looking for God. Jacob was alone. He wanted to be alone. In fact, at first, he's probably going, who is this guy? And God, send him away. Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk to you, and I'm trying to take care of my fears, and here's this bozo showing up to want a, you know, a wrestling match. Like, what is this, right? But then he realizes, of course, that it's God, and he probably feels pretty dumb. At least I would if I had that attitude. But here's the thing. God comes, and he meets him in that fear, in that anxiety, in that uncertainty. And it may not be the way that he expected God to come and meet him. He maybe was expecting to be like all the other times in a vision or a dream or something like that. But, but here's the point for us is that in our uncertainty, in our fears, in our anxieties, God will show up and it may not be the way that we expect him to show up, but God always uses those, those moments and those times to transform us for good. Always uses those moments. Jacob's name meant deceiver, right? Kind of mentioned that because of what he did. But after that, he was named Israel. And what Israel means is striven with God. So the reason why God gives him that name is because, listen, Jacob, I don't want you to be known anymore as one who was a deceiver. I don't want you to be known as one who cheated his way to get what he has. I want you to be known as someone who wrestled with God 
you didn't win. It says that he prevailed with God, and so he, he lasted at least. But you wrestled with me, and you didn't give up. You kept on wrestling, and you kept on pursuing, and you kept on going. So I want people to know that you have wrestled with God and now have a greater faith because of it. And the blessings that came from that also, of course, we know are eternal because his name was changed to Israel, and that's God's chosen people. And so you have the Israelites, you have the kingdom of Israel, and that, if you know anything about end times and future stuff, is a pretty big deal. So his name is changed and the blessings are eternal that, it, that are given to him. And so it's a pretty big thing that he wrestled with God and what happened through his faith. Jacob's got a brand new identity, right? Israel. We see that all throughout scripture, by the way, of people getting new names, right? You know that Saul was changed to Paul and Simon is Peter, the rock. So you have these name changes that happen because names are very significant, so we ourselves, right, we may not have a name change, but our identity, when we enter into a relationship with, with Christ, our identity is in that moment changed. We are a different person. We see that in the New Testament as we see what our identity is now as a result of what Christ did, right? Galatians 2.20, to give you an example, says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So it's not us anymore, it's Christ in us. So our identity has changed, but we sometimes forget that. We sometimes go back to our our fear and our self-doubt and our thinking that we're not good enough and thinking that we're not this or not that when God says, look, you are because I look at you through the lens of Christ now. So our identity is completely changed. But sometimes, sometimes the blessings of, of God don't come until we've had a prolonged period of prayer. Sometimes the blessings of God don't come until we wrestle with him for a very, very long time. It may not be overnight. It may not be one night of wrestling. It could be years of wrestling with God over something. But if we continue to wrestle with God, uh, one pastor says it like this, when you wrestle with him in prayer, it's an invitation to receive his blessing. So we continue, so we receive his blessing. And he says, stay with him and don't give up. Do not let him go until he blesses you. <laughs> it sounds so like that we have the power, but we don't. But don't let God go. No, God, you're not leaving until, until this happens. I'm gonna keep pursuing. I'm gonna keep staying in your word. I'm gonna keep on doing this until you bless me, until you answer this. I'm gonna keep on pursuing you. I'm not gonna let you go. So continue until he blesses you. He loves to bless that kind of tenacious faith. And I guarantee you, you will come out transformed. So number three is being in the presence of God sometimes requires wrestling. Listen, there is... There is absolutely nothing, there is nothing in this world like sitting in the presence of God, nothing. There's nothing like it. I remember in 2005, so my, my story, to, not to go into the whole thing, but out of my first college, I had a, a year and a half or so of just really stupid decisions and really bad stuff and just walked away from God if I even really knew him. And I was just living for myself. And 2005, I was given the opportunity to go out to California to uh, the mountains to play at a uh, Christian summer camp. I got to play the drums for a summer. It's a pretty sweet gig because I got paid uh, to play and I just had to play the drums and I had no responsibilities, so it was pretty sweet. But in the mountains of California, which are beautiful, I, was, I had so much time just to be in God's word and to, to listen to God, listening to music that was, that was wholesome and uplifting. And I'm just telling you, man, sitting in his presence for that period of time was one of the greatest things that transformed my trajectory and, and really got me to doing what I'm doing today because God spoke to me so clearly in those moments. God used those times of just sitting and resting and listening 
to completely change the way I looked at him, looked at myself, looked at my life, looked at what I could do for him and for his kingdom and for his glory. So I had this experience that was just life transforming. So I'm, from a personal experience, there is nothing like sitting in the presence of God. Sometimes he asks us to do things that are really, really hard. Sometimes he asks us to do things that are seemingly impossible. And so we push it off and we come up with excuses and just, you know, when we're tempted to deflect the things that God are asking, is asking us to do, just be quiet and just allow him to speak. I think that's one of the main things why we can't really get anything done when we're talking to God is because we want to talk and our voice is so loud. But if we just stop and listen to what God wants to say, he gives you that supernatural confidence in your weakness. And when you're consistently in his presence, when you're always just pursuing him and resting and reading and getting to know him, you will absolutely be unrecognizable. You will be, because you are transformed more and more into the image of his son. The Bible says that I'm, he must increase and I must decrease, right? The more that we are, we are in his word, the more he shines through us and the more, the less and less we become visible. We don't wanna be seen, we want Christ to be seen through us. And the only way for that to happen is when we're resting and sitting in his presence. And then, of course, sometimes it does get really, really hard. It gets really hard. And a relationship with God is not meant to be easy. If it's meant to be easy, everyone would do it. It's really hard sometimes. Sometimes it seems like God's not listening. And so we continue to pursue and ask and pursue and shake our fist and question. I'm just telling you right now that God can handle any question you throw at him. God can handle any amount of fist shaking that you might do. God can handle, handle any of your questioning. He can handle your fears. He can handle your doubts. He can handle anything that, you, that might be weighing you down that you try to throw at him. I'm telling you, he can handle it. But it's not easy all the time. But when we pursue, when we sit in his presence, when we meditate, when we just marinate in the truth and love of God, I'm telling you that things will be so much better and things will change drastically in our lives. So being in the presence of God, there's power in it. We are different because of it. It's an invitation. Throw away the barriers, throw away the things that get in the way and just sit and allow God to work and we will be a different church if we are constantly just in his presence. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for this message series about just being in your presence. I mean, this is what we're called to as believers. We, we have to preach it to remind ourselves that it's important, God, but it, it should be something that as believers we are just drawn to. We didn't enter into a relationship with you so that we could just sit back now and not pursue you. We, we want to be with you. We want to be in your presence. We want you to transform us, God, but there's so many things that get in the way. So I, I pray that you would use your spirit even today, just to, to crumble the walls, to just completely obliterate anything that is in the way of us pursuing you, anything that is a distraction, any voice in our head that is louder than you. God, I pray that you would just, just shut that voice up and allow us to hear you. And uh, God, we are so much better at, at living for you, at, at glorifying you when we can sit in your presence. So God, I pray that right now in this moment, that you would shatter walls and that we would enter into these next few songs as we sing to you, that it wouldn't just be singing, God, but we would be in your presence, worshiping you, glorifying you. So begin that right now, God, in our lives. We love you so much and are just so thankful for your word. And uh, God, just give us a heart for you. We love you so much. Uh, in your son's name, amen.